Now, listen to me. I've been in a, I've been in a uh, holding pattern over O'Hare for the last couple of weeks. We lived about 35 miles west of O'Hare, and right above our yard was the loudest noise you could imagine all of the time. And the holding pattern that I'm talking about is I've known I'm going to preach on this text. And I've known that it's a dangerous text. And I've known that it's, that it's a privilege to be able to preach on it. But I, I've known that we ask that all the passengers be seated and fasten their safety belts. Because it's a dangerous passage. And the reason it's dangerous is there's not one person here who is going to hear the text read, let alone preached, without thinking about death and judgment. And we work very hard in America today to avoid ever thinking about death. We put it in the hospital, behind gowns and curtains and doors, with visiting hours, and only this number of people allowed in at this time. If you're family and if you're a pastor, give it up. And judgment, <laughs> that's so exotic the zoos don't even have a place for it. But there's no escaping it in the text today. And it doesn't come from me, it comes from the Apostle Paul, and it's not inspired by him, because holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And not one word of Scripture comes from the will of man, it says in Peter. And so let's read the text, and then let's give our hearts, our consciences, and our minds, and our bodies to the text. And what that means is you have to give your heart and mind and body to me during this time, because the way this text will come to you is from me preaching. And God is not unaware of that. If God had simply wanted the Bible to be something that was like a, a two-terabyte drive that you could download... He could have invented hard drives 2,000 years ago and removed man. But in point of fact, for many centuries, there weren't even Bibles for the people in the churches. The way they received scripture was from the apostles and then from the apostles' protégés, the, the, the men they ordained to carry on the faithful word. And so we take it for granted that everybody from the time of Adam on had a book like this that they just opened up with a cup of coffee and had devotional reading. But that wasn't the way until recently, the invention of the printing press. And that's when we began to have such a tremendous treasure. And now that we have iPhones or smartphones, we don't even bother having Gutenberg. <laughs> you know, that's going to be relegated to the Lilly Library. See? There you are. I mean, if Rachel is carrying, what is it? A nook. <laughs> That's fitting. All right. So I think just to be tactile, I'm going to open my book, and I'm going to read the text to you, okay? We're in Corinthians. We've been there for quite a while, and we're ending chapter 9. We're in the last couple of verses of Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And just today, 
to get your body in the mood, stand as I read the word of God to you. Please. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, most of you know, but for those of you who haven't been here for a while, most of you know that the Corinthian church was a church that was very proud of its brains. It thought that it was smart. Everybody there thought that they had knowledge and wisdom that were superior to everybody else. And it was a Greek city. The culture was Greek. It wasn't Jewish and it wasn't Roman. It was Greek. And consequently, just like today, um, there's a great difference between Chicago and New York and San Francisco and L.A., right? Greek culture is what you suck in like your mother's milk in a university community. It's Greek culture. And so we don't have a lot of problems understanding, for instance, the deep, deep conviction of people in a community that their brains and their understanding are superior to everybody else's, right? That's what Bloomington thinks. That's why you go around Bloomington now and everywhere there are idols of brains. Have you seen the idols? And that is Bloomington's God. It's the brain. That's Greek. The problem is that today, our university culture lives off of sexual immorality and degrees. And sexual immorality requires a decadence of physical bodily functions. It requires us to decay physically. And so what we do is we, we have a whole host of businesses and publications and internet and everything that lives off of sexual immorality and the sophistication intellectually of Greek culture. And this is to separate this city into two parts, one that isn't Greek and the other that's Greek, because in Greek culture, what you had was you had the life of the mind and the life of the body, and they were meshed together. And so half of a young man's training as he grew into manhood was his brain. The other half was the gymnasium. This is the reason that the Olympics, or in the case of Corinth, it wasn't so much the Olympics as the Isthmian Games. Every three years they would have these games and the whole town was caught up in them. And so it was this perfect combination of physical discipline and intellectual discipline. They were godless, they were idolaters, but they were very proud of their bodies, they were very proud of their brains, all right? So if you could imagine a university where the athletics program was actually respected by the intellectuals, then you'd have Greek culture. Now, the church was caught up in Greek culture. 
because we as churches, as Christians, are always caught up in the values and the, the godless relativism and paganism of the people we live among. We reflect our culture. We're not above that. All right? Advertisers are actually good. All right? And so the church had this profound conviction, every one of them, that they were superior to the people next to them in the pew. And there were a number of things they fought over. For instance, when they'd have the Lord's Supper, instead of being uh, disciplined by having one cup and one loaf of bread, all of them would bring their food, and depending on whether they were poor or rich, they'd either be able to get drunk, they'd be able to go ahead and eat and just have a feast, or the other Christians had nothing to eat. In the same church, at the Lord's table, this was going on. Another thing that was going on was there was controversy over whether or not you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Idols were all through Greek culture. And so most of the meat that was available had been at one point a part of sacrifices to idols. And so the Christians were divided over whether or not they should eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And of course, because they were Greek, they had such superiority about their intellect. And so they would look at the other side of the church, and half of them ate meat sacrifice. We don't know what the proportions were. Let's say half of them believed in eat, eating meat sacrifice idols. The other half didn't. Well, the half that believed in eating meat sacrifice, you know, idols aren't anything. We know that there is only one God. In him we live and move and have our being. Why should we be intimidated by idols? They are nothing. They can't speak. They can't move. They're a function of the creation of hands. And the other half of the people were saying, wait a second, you know your neighbors. You know that they believe that this is God. You know that they worship these. You know this meat has been sacrificed in the worship of these, these, these demons. And they look at us and they say, oh, come on, grow up. What are you so, so insecure about? Don't you realize that the idols are nothing? And they're going, but, but my conscience. They say, get over it. In Christ we have freedom. You know, it sounds almost American, doesn't it? And so everything they hit, they're divided. A man with his father's wife. Oh, we're superior to that. It's no big deal. Bodies don't really matter. What matters is our brains, you know. That's good Bloomington ideology, you know. Whether you can think, whether you can think as fast as I can, you know. And so the Apostle Paul, from a distance, is writing a letter, and he's saying to them, look, don't be cruel to one another. Don't be superior to one another. Don't look down your noses at the weak. Don't use your so-called knowledge to kill the conscience of a soul for whom Christ died. How could you do that? Okay, fine. You have freedom to eat meat sacrificed. If you eating meat sacrificed idols causes one of these little ones to stumble, then where are you? Do you remember what Jesus said? Anybody that causes, it would be better for a millstone and to be tossed into the water. And you can tell as he's writing that he anticipates, as any good writer does, the reaction of the readers. And you can tell as he writes that after he said it the first time, he knows it hasn't gotten through. So he goes on and says it a second time. You can tell he knows it hasn't gotten through the second time because then he says it a third time. And you can tell that he knows that they're unbelievably proud and divided. 
because he just starts going around and around and around and around and around. This last week or two weeks ago, we got a, a portable good volleyball net so that we can play here at church and when the college group comes to our house and stuff. And so D-Wayne and, was it you? Who was it? Who was the other person that helped? I don't remember. Anyhow, two men came over. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I remember. It was Joe. They came over to set it up, and they got done setting it up. It was brand new. And I looked, and up in the corner, there is a ton of white thread, very thick, almost rope, and it's sewn all over the, re- the, the plastic that binds the rope at the top and then that puts it on the pole. And so right out of the box, there's all this thread, but it's, but it's ripped so that the net is starting to come apart there where the reinforcement is. Why is there so much sewing up there of white rope? It's to keep it from coming apart, right? And the Apostle Paul is sewing and sewing and sewing and sewing and sewing and sewing and sewing sewing to reinforce the point that the people of God are to be one, that they're to be humble, that they're to be lovers of one another, that they're not to divide, that they're not to use their superior intellect, which probably actually isn't superior at all because they probably just learned the word mentality and that's all they know what to say. Well, they're a mentality, you know, as if that's knowledge or wisdom, you know. Can't believe your mentality. Does it make you feel good? I mean, that's basically the level that the Corinthians are dealing with. Well, you know, they're, they're just have a certain mentality. I just love that word. It's, it's, it is the supreme expression of American education today. He's got a mentality. So stupid. Everybody has a mentality, and most the person that uses the word mentality all the time. <laughs> so Paul's looking at him, and he knows they all have such superiority. And so he takes the doctrine of love. And he starts illustrating it in every way he possibly can. He's just sewing and sewing and sewing right at the point of greatest stress. And we're picking up in the middle. And what he's just said is, look, I'm a bigwig in the church, he says. I'm an apostle. He says, I'm a Christian and I have freedom. Don't I have freedom? He says, don't I have rights that appertain to, a, to an apostle? He goes on and on about all the things he's given up out of love. And then he tries to entice them to give up things out of love, okay, for one another. And he gets to the end and he says, look, if, if, I, if, if I eat meat and it causes harm to a brother or sister in Christ, I will never eat meat again. Now, that doesn't do much negative for people from Japan, I found out last night, because... They don't really care about meat. They care about fish. Selena's parents were in town, and David and Annie hosted them, and my wife and me. But let me tell you, me? <laughs> Never eat meat again? Think of the Apostle Paul. Never eat meat again. No small, no big thing. He'll just give it up for the sake of his love for the church. Remember how I told you, he keeps sewing and sewing and sewing and sewing. He's reinforcing this joint, right? And he knows he still hasn't gotten them. And that's where our text comes in. 
He's just gotten done saying, if me eating meat stumbles them, causes them to stumble, then I'll never eat meat again. And then is when he says this. He says, do you not know? Oh, no, I'm sorry. And then he goes into this section where he says, actually, am I going to go back? Um, I want to see where that is. Boy, I can't even find it. What verse is it? It's 8.13, so it's the end of chapter 8. And then he goes into the statement of his freedoms and his privileges as an apostle. And that's most of chapter 9. And we pull to the end of chapter 9. And, yeah, I'm sorry. What I particularly wanted to note was the end of chapter of verse 23, where he says in chapter 20, in verse 22, I'm sorry, not chapter, but verses. He says at the end of, cha- of verse 22 of chapter 9, which is two verses before our text, to the weak I became weak. And so that's the meaning of I won't eat meat. You know, if it'll hurt them, I'll become weak. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. And then this verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, a couple weeks ago, we ended with that verse. And what we saw in that verse is that the Apostle Paul is saying not just that he's willing to lower himself to the needs of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that can be a certain superiority. Do you understand what I mean by that? If we're just simply being magnanimous, stooping down to help the poor child, that can reinforce our pride in a very intense way. Uh, When Blue Bloods in Boston do it, they call it noblesse oblige. But the Apostle Paul pokes a hole in that and lets all the hot air out because he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And then he says, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And that is a very unusual thing. It's something that we would not hear today because the Apostle Paul says very clearly that his lowering himself to serve the needs of other Christians is a part of his own salvation. That's what he means when saying, I'll do this so that I myself may become a fellow partaker. In other words, my kindness, my love, my compassion, my weakness, everything I do for other Christians is part of me becoming a fellow partaker of the gospel. Now, I want you to realize that this is not something that goes down easily, down our gullet. It doesn't go down easily. And the reason is that we're all trained to think, I prayed the sinner's prayer, or I was baptized, or I go to Mass every day, or whatever your thing is. I do these certain things, and I'm saved through these certain things. And yet the Apostle Paul says here that his love for other Christians and his lowering of himself to serve other Christians is so that he may become a fellow partaker in the gospel. 
And we listen to that and we think, wait a second, does he think he's saved by works? All right? You feel the setup now. Now, with that as the previous phrase, then we come into our text, do you not though that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's just been talking about becoming a fellow partaker of the gospel. And so the race is the gospel. The race is salvation. The race is eternal life. All right? The race is salvation. All right? And maybe I should change it around and say the finish line is salvation. Maybe I should change it around and say the finish line is death. But you see what's going on here is not that he's all of a sudden switched to games and athletics. He's talking about salvation. And he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Now what is running the race? Well, running the race is confessing your sins in repentance and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Every person who confesses their sin, that goes before God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and then turns and faces the cross of Jesus Christ, sees him high and lifted up, sees him the Lamb of God without blemish, sees him on the cross pouring his blood out to turn away the wrath of God against sinners. Every person that opens up the sin of his heart and confesses it and then turns to Jesus Christ and says, O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon me. That process, whereby he confesses publicly his faith in Jesus Christ and is baptized into the church, that's running the race. Every person that does that has entered the race as a competitor. All right? And the Apostle Paul is saying, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? In other words, don't you know that everybody that's in church on Sunday morning is a runner? Everybody that's in church on Sunday morning has uh, a number. Everybody that's in church on Sunday morning has had their name entered into the list of competitors. Everyone in the church on Sunday morning has a lane that belongs to them. We all run. Now, the truth is there are some here this morning who have never made any public claim to be a Christian. And so you're not included here. Because you haven't entered the race because you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ and taken your sin to his blood to be cleansed, all right? So you're not a runner, but those of you that claim to be Christians, you've entered the race, all right? And what he's saying is, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? In other words, you're running, right? You're running, right? Everybody's running. We're all running, right? You're a runner, right? Okay, you're a, you're a runner. He says, all run, but only one receives the prize. Now, now, what is that about? What's the prize? Well, we all know what the prize is, right? The prize is eternal life. I mean, the prize isn't death. <laughs> you know, the prize isn't getting your children into Wheaton or Taylor or Ivy Tech. The prize isn't getting your daughter to marry a doctor. 
right? The prize isn't getting your son to be Wig Duncan's assistant, right? The prize isn't getting a church of a thousand members, right? The prize isn't your pension plan, right, George? What do you think the prize is? Does anybody have any idea for any competitor to the prize being eternal life? No, the prize is eternal life. But the Apostle Paul says only one gets the prize. So everybody runs, but only one gets the prize. (laughs) Remember I told you, fasten your safety belts. What is the Apostle Paul saying here when he says only one gets the prize? Well, it's the most obvious thing in the world, right? When you watch the Olympics, one person gets the prize, right? There's only one gold medal unless it's a photo finish, and we're talking a photo finish, photo finish. Only one gets the prize. So he's using the example of athletic competitions, and he's saying only one gets the prize. But is he teaching us that every single person sitting here this morning who has confessed faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized into his church is our competitor? Because after all, there's only one person that's going to get the prize. And so really what we need is to have a gun that we can just like take all of you out so that I can get the prize. I mean, you know, in a race, if you lower the number of competitors, your chances of winning go up. But the church is not like that. We know that because the whole point of everything he's writing is to get us to help one another run the race. And so some of the analogy is helpful and some of it is baggage you have to throw away. It's all always like that with, with, with examples, with parables, with illustrations. And so what he's saying is not that we should run in such a way that we cause other people to be disqualified so that we have a better chance. What he's saying is we should run in such a way that we ourselves will get the prize. He's not teaching us that there is only one person who will win. He's not teaching us even that there are 144,000, you know, the Mormons. He's teaching us that compared to the number who run the race, what? Now, come on. Be honest, compared to all running, how many finish the race without being disqualified? Very, very, very small number. Do you remember what Jesus said? Broad is the path, remember? that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way, and few there be that find it that leads to eternal life. Do you remember that Jesus also said, many are what? Called, and few are chosen. (laughs) The calling of a pastor is to point out the obvious. And it's very obvious to any of us that have been here for any while how many have fallen by the wayside. Now, it's very difficult for me to talk about people my age who have fallen by the wayside because our bonding to them is a little deeper. They've been here for years. So let me whoop up on young people. All right? We get a lot of college students into this church. 
many of them are disqualified because they choose to marry an unbeliever. We see it happening. We see them start to date an unbeliever, and we warn them, and they won't listen. And for a while, they have one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock. And the boat drifts, and pretty soon they start getting angry and snapping at us. And then they're gone. We have watched this happen over and over again, and all of you are probably willing to say, yes, that's a good example of the decision placed in front of every soul, whether they will run in such a way as to win. And it's a perfect example of why there are few that finish the race without being disqualified. But do you realize that this is true of older people also? I mean, do you really think it's only youth that decide to throw in the towel on the race because it gets hard? I brought up here this morning one of my favorite parts of the ministry, the work of the pastorate, is graveside services. I love, absolutely love graveside services. If you ever have a need for somebody to do a graveside service, let me do it. And part of the reason is because I get to pray this prayer from Cranmer's prayer book, all right? Centuries old. He says at the graveside, Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow and never continueth in one stay. In the midst of life, we are in death. Of whom may we seek for succor? But of thee, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. Yet, O Lord God, most holy, O Lord, most mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. I don't know that there's any phrase that I find as comforting as that phrase. To confess to God, Thou knowest, O Lord, the secrets of our hearts. There's a beautiful treatment of that by Purcell that I commend to you. I think our choir has sung it for us. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts, the secret of my heart. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayer, but spare us, Lord, O most holy, O God, most mighty, O holy and merciful Savior, thou most worthy judge eternal, suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death to fall from thee. I'm looking at Kelly because I was in her hospital room after she had her what was it called? Uh, acoustic neuroma. And what was the... She had a central line put in. And when she came out having the central line put in, 
um, Kelly is a strong woman, but Kelly was crying. And so uh, her mother, I believe, uh, several of us were there, and we tried to comfort her, but she would not be comforted. She wasn't hardened in grief, but she was just so sad and grieving. Anyhow, afterwards, we found out the rest of the story. We found out that she could actually feel them putting the tubes into her heart. And so she was aware in a way she had never been before of her mortality. And I love those moments. I just love them because then everything that we think is so important, it's just gone. It's just gone. We don't have to be muckety-muck and pee on. We can just be stupid one and stupid two and stupid three and stupid four and sinner one and sinner two and cling to Christ thief one and cling to Christ thief two. And do you realize that right there at the edge of death, Kelly was, and what was she crying about? She was crying because she was aware that even in the moment of death, that for pains of death, she could fall from God. She trembled for her soul. You can't tremble for your body at the moment of death. Everybody knows what comes next. We're not crying about our bodies. I'm not diminishing our bodies. But what all of us know is it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to us, run in such a way that you won't be disqualified. Run so that you win. So I've been circling over this text for a couple weeks as the Olympics come on. Yesterday, Taylor showed up at our house, un uninvited. And then he said, Dad, come watch the Olympics with me, unasked. And so he turns on the Olympics, and there's the bike race. Did you see it? How many of you watched that, the bike race? And it gets to the end of the race. Two men out in front of all the other men. One bike length between them. Coming around a turn to the left, and there's the finish line. And the leader was not content to sprint and give it everything he had. He wanted to know what his competition was. You saw that. And so first he looked around a little bit to the right and saw the guy right on his tail. But then he did this. Then he looked off to it, and just like that, the guy on his right sprinted around him and won by three lengths. Very end of the race. Oh, Lord, suffer us not for any pains of death to fall from me. Christians in past centuries knew that the race was not over until it was over. Evangelicals today, the race is over when they repeat the sinner's prayer. Reformed federal vision men today, the race is over as soon as you're baptized. Homeschooling kids, the race is over as soon as your mother writes out that silly transcript and stamps it with that silly thing she bought at the 
five and ten cent store. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was seeing a homeschooling family that we, we have gotten close to through the years, but we never see them. And, uh, but soccer pulls us together. I was seeing this last week, and I was warning their beautiful high school daughter about the difficult days that were facing her. And her mother said, oh, we've trained her right. I just thought, oh, man. It's as if Satan trembles when a child's homeschooled. I mean, I have nothing against homeschooling, but boy, if you think you're going to homeschool your kids away from principalities and powers, you're an absolute idiot. <laughs> One problem is those children will be like you are. <laughs> and, and that's not a pretty picture, Therese. <laughs> South African humor. <laughs> we homeschooled. We Christian schooled. We public schooled. So I'm able to talk to all three of the various uh, kinds of uh, perversity. <laughs> but listen, the race isn't over until it's over. It's not over until it's over. And the Apostle Paul says you're to run so that you win. And I'm telling you in the ministry, it is unbelievable how many people fall by the wayside. And boy, everybody just absolutely demands that you not ever say what Scripture says. They went out from us because they were not of us. I'm quoting Scripture. Did you know that? That's John, the beloved disciple, the apostle of love. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. What do you think it means when somebody casts off the church of Jesus Christ? Do you think that has no repercussions for their future? Do you think it's the person that casts off the church that is the one who will win? You think it's the person that casts off the discipline of the elders who is the one person who will win? Do you think it's the person that has such a highly developed sense of their own personal autonomy and, and self-worth and dignity and intellectual acumen? that they can't be rebuked, that, that it's that person that will win? You think Brian McLaren's going to win? And you say, I don't know who Brian McLaren is, and I say, that that's a step towards winning. Listen. The world is filled with people who have had pastors who have reassured them that there's no threat. As long as you've entered the race, you'll win. But the one thing we can absolutely say on the basis of this text is entering the race guarantees nothing. Baptism guarantees nothing. And you say, well, now, wait a second. The Bible says that baptism now saves us. I say, oh, really? This the washing of water? And you say, I don't know what you're talking about. I say, go look the text up. You say, well, you're dissing baptism. I'm not dissing baptism. It's commanded. We do it, but we don't think that that guarantees we finish the race. There's only one thing that finishes the race. 
and that's death. And even then it doesn't finish the race because then you have to wait to hear what you have said to you. Death and then what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter the rest that I have prepared for you. Don't you remember the old godly statement that you expect to find three surprises when you die? Number one, to find that some people were in heaven that you never thought would be. Number two, to find that there aren't some people in heaven that you were sure would be. And number three, biggest surprise of all, to find that you're in heaven. Listen, if you don't like this text because it puts into question whether you are really a Christian, notice how I said that. I do believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But if that doctrine has caused you to have no compunction of conscience, if that doctrine has caused you to become secure in Zion, if that doctrine has robbed you of the precious gift of the fear of your heavenly Father, that doctrine is a heresy to you. Because you don't understand it. There is no such thing as eternal security until you have died and you have heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let me read to you what Charles Hodge says about this text. He's commenting specifically on the end of the text where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified And Charles Hodge says this. He says, He made these strenuous exertions, lest, having preached the gospel to others, he himself should become a reprobate, one rejected. What an argument and what a reproof this is. The reckless and listless. Do you know what listless is? You remember the guy in the the heat that Phelps won? You remember that guy on the closest lane? who everybody was yawning, waiting for him to come home. He swam listlessly. He had no energy. He had no zeal. He just was swimming. Okay? The reckless and listless Corinthians thought that they could safely indulge themselves to the very edge of sin. Huh? Huh? While this devoted apostle considered himself as engaged in a life struggle for his salvation. This same apostle, however, who evidently acted on the principle that the righteous are scarcely saved. And that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. At other times, he, this same man, breaks out in the most joyful assurances of salvation and says that he was persuaded that nothing in heaven, earth, or hell could ever separate him from the love of God. And then this final statement from Hodge, he says, the one state of mind is the necessary condition for the other. Listen, he goes on in this text 
after exhorting us to run so that we win. And he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive an Im- a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The gold back then wasn't even a gold medal. It was like a bunch of bay leaves or olive branches or pine leaves in the Isthmian games in Corinth. And think of how quickly they'd go dry and they'd turn brown. Perishable. You look at Mike, or not Mike Phelps, but uh, did you see they, they had spits uh, with all his medals on his stomach? Did you see that, you know, leading up to the games? Perishable. He says, but for us, what? It's an imperishable crown. Don't you remember all the statements of Scripture? Paul, at the end of his life, this godly man, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, do not trust in church membership. Do not trust in baptism. Do not trust in membership of this church. Do not trust in your grandmother. Do not trust in your wife. Do not trust in your godly children. The only thing to trust in is Jesus Christ. And the only way to know that you truly have faith in Jesus Christ is your fruit. Because Jesus said, by their fruit ye shall know them. And so if you want to know whether you're running the race... Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. Imagine somebody that doesn't know where the goal line is, and so he sees a beautiful meadow, and he's just off to the meadow. And then he says a beautiful waterfall, and he's off to the waterfall. And then he sees a beautiful woman. He's off to the beautiful woman. Then he sees a beautiful pension plan, and he's off to the beautiful pension plan. No, 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 no. We are not worldlings. We do not love the things of this world. We don't even stop to smell the roses. There's a certain hardness to us that the world doesn't understand. Okay? I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Can you imagine a boxer beating the air? Duh. I mean, why would you beat the air? (laughs) You know? It'd be stupid. You're going to lose. Right? But here's the interesting thing. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. And so here's the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is actually not going like this. He's going pew. You know, he's punching his face. And the Greek word there is actually the word for puffy black and blue cheeks and eyes, black eyes. And so the Apostle Paul, for the sake of the kingdom of God, is punching his face so hard that he's giving himself a black eye. 
That's what discipline myself that's translated there means. And, 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 and then, do you know what slave? I make my body my slave. Do you know what slave means? Slave. <laughs> it actually means slave. Now, aren't these the most popular words in the United States of America today? Discipline and slave. <laughs> Come on, you got to laugh. Laugh. I mean, the Apostle Paul is so politically incorrect. Who believes in discipline anymore, let alone corporal punishment, let alone self-flagellation? And yet the world is covered with it. Everywhere you turn, there are women cutting themselves. And once again, it's because we do not give ourselves to the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And all of a sudden, when we give ourselves to the kingdom of God and its righteousness, then we don't want to cut ourselves anymore. Because we know that it is proper for us to discipline our bodies and make them our slave, not so that we work out our self-loathing, but so that we become more and more like the perfect Lamb of God. And all of a sudden, our love for him makes us want to punch ourselves, but it's not cutting and it's not those uh, stencil things that you do, you know, and the piercing things and stuff. Because it's just like goth. Oh, I know. Don't worry. I pierce my ear. I know. We're precious. But all of a sudden, we're free to discipline our bodies for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. All of a sudden, we're free to get rid of our bank accounts. We're free to use up our homes. We're free to loan out our cars. We're free to let our children be taught by somebody other than precious me. All of a sudden, we see everywhere... Everywhere we look, we see the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we're the most extravagant, generous, interesting. Can you believe how boring Facebook is? It's utterly boring. And then all of a sudden, a real Christian shows up on Facebook, and it gets real interesting. Right? How many of you had that experience, you know? So much more interesting than your high school sweetheart. Christians have the freedom to discipline their bodies, to make them their slaves, for what purpose? Here's the purpose, okay? So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says that he disciplines his body. He makes it his slave so that he himself will not go to hell. You know, if you go out west towards Bloomfield, you'll see a big sign for a church, big billboard. Some of you probably pass it every day. And the sign says, it's an advertisement for church, and it says, you know, basically, come to our church because at our church, you're absolutely be saved. Or you're absolutely eternally secure or something. Does anybody remember what it actually says? It's like, it's like where, where all the promises are fulfilled or where all the hopes and dreams are, 
I forget what it is. And I thought, you know, I want to take out a billboard for this church. And you know what the billboard for this church will be? And I think, I think it'll make our church grow so that I'm an important person. And the billboard for this church will be, come to Clear Note Church where we will give back to you the fear of God. And once we fear God, then we love God. Because we know, oh Lord, who else will we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. And then like Thomas, we'll say, hey, let's go up to Jerusalem with him. Let's go up to Jerusalem with him. I'm not saying it, David. You warned me, so I'm not saying what they were going to do when they went up to Jerusalem. (laughs) But you might get a hint from the fact that Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. All right? Now, about this time, you think, okay, that was a dose, and I'm not sure we needed that, but thank you, and it went down, and let's be done now, right? I want to warn you, the Apostle Paul is going to continue to sow. Because the very next chapter goes into a long harangue about how many of the Israelites in the Old Testament were damned. And so he thinks we need it more. And I'm confident, knowing you, my flock, that you do need it more and that I need it more. And I'm going to end with one other thing. Listen, I have not been able to read to you today a wonderful, wonderful account of uh, Alberto Salazar and his running that is in... uh, (laughs) Would somebody do, do a wonderful work Um, Well, I guess I'll just say, if you will write our office, we will send you a PDF of this. It will be called Fair Use Because of Instruction. All right? And this is a little piece that you should read and think about your spiritual life and your disciplines. Okay? Where it talks about this great long-distance runner and what he would do in order to compete. And I want you to, every time you read about sports and the disciplines that athletes go through, I want you to think about your spiritual life. All right, now here's my final exhortation to you. If you live your Christian life in such a way that there is no physical discipline that you have put yourself under because of your faith, I don't give a plug nickel for your spiritual life. If the Apostle Paul says that he places his body under slavery conditions, and that he pummels himself. And the whole context is bodies. This is athletes in competition. If the Apostle Paul needed to do that, I do not believe that your religion is worth anything if it's simply intellectual. I don't want to hear you talk about your heart until you tell me about your body. If there is not something in your life, physical, that you have put yourself under discipline about because you do not want to be disqualified, 
I don't give you a plug nickel for your faith and for you finishing the race. Now, do you all understand me? Don't give me all this talk about this, that, and the other thing and how much you just love Jesus if you don't have any physical disciplines that you're under. Because physical disciplines always are next to spiritual disciplines. All right? What it means to you, if you get private with me, I'll be happy to explore that with you and to tell you what it means for me. My wife knows currently. They're always changing. There's new ones coming, old ones rearing their heads again, you know. But if you don't have yourself under some physical discipline, I don't give you a plug nickel for your Christian faith. And you say, well, we're not saved by works. I say, yeah, but you know, works are real helpful. They're part of that fear and trembling Father, I thank you that you have given us the Bible so that we can be brought back to humility. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul's warning that many are disqualified. I thank you for his faithfulness in giving the warning, and I pray that you will help us not to have hard hearts and to resist this warning, but to give ourselves to it that on that day we may hear, well done thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the rest that I have prepared for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and let's...